Reconciliation, Australian Real Progressive acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders peoples today. Today my special guest is Samuel Holland of the New Liberals, candidate for the seat of Ford in Queensland. Now all I know about Sam at this stage is that he is a scientist. This interview was recorded on Friday the 10th of February 2022. Welcome, Sam. Hi, Darren. Um, thank you for having me. No worries. Now, tell us a bit about yourself and the electorate of Ford. A quick internet search suggests it's made up of southeast Queensland, mostly the Gold Coast and Logan. Yeah, but yeah. Um, you all, my name's Sam. I'm a scientist and I'm... Um, I got a little bit sick of people telling me to put up or shut up, so I just put up, I guess. Um, <laughs> um, and as for Ford, it sort of sits in between the Brisbane and the Gold Coast. Um, uh, historically, it's Yukonbeer land, and now our sort of capital, being Lee, has a lot of historical German background. Um, and it was sort of like um, like cane fields and whatnot. Um, so we were... I heard the other day that we um, sort of self-identify as the last real country town in southeast Queensland, which is probably a good analogy. But then on the other end, um, uh, our mayor, Darren Power and Logan, um, well, because we sit in the, between Logan and the Gold Coast, we have two mayors. But um, the, the Logan Council don't really like us because we're in the dodgy part of them, as they call it. And the Gold Coast just say the same. So um, I'm just trying to get up here and, uh, try to represent so that we can um, get better. It sounds like a typical city versus country mentality. Yeah, exactly. Um, there is sort of that uh, mentality of people not wanting to come out of the city and then vice versa. Um, so it's it's really it's really um, it's really difficult to ma- uh, to manage that, I guess. And um, I don't know. I'm just trying to 
provide an option um, because the only only electorate um, that sort of sits across both categories is at the federal level forward. Um, so I guess I'm standing up because we can't really solve this at a local level. We can't really solve it at a state level. So the only real option is to go federal. Okay. I think maybe in New South Wales, the seat of Macquarie across the Blue Mountains and Western Sydney might serve a similar... Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's um, exactly right, yeah. Um, Anyhow, let's get into some of the questions anyway. that Because um, I don't know for sure, but I had a quick look at the electoral map and it seems to be a bit of a bellwether seat, swinging whichever way the government does. Yeah, yeah. Like yourself and other minor party candidates, do they really have a chance of um, successfully obtaining the seat? Yeah, yeah. You've been looking at um, Anthony Green's analysis, um, um, which he's right. Every time when forward's called, the election is basically called. Um, but honestly, I see the electorate more as a town looking to hope. Um, and it just happens to be when the election swings that the hope is sort of based on it. Because we saw that with Brett McGrews. Um, he was in 2007, the run election. And obviously, there was a lot of hope behind the right government. And um, my town and my electorate was exempt from that. And, you know, the Rudd government promised a lot of potential for, uh, you know, blue-collar workers, which take up the majority of my electorate. Um, so, obviously, you know, uh, Brett McGoose had a very good opportunity uh, to ride on that wave. And then when the GFC happened, Bert offered good economic management, um, which obviously was very... Um, well, very enticing to people who had just gone for the GFC, especially if you didn't understand how modern monetary theory works, which most people don't. But, you know, obviously that's the point of this podcast is. But <laughs> Absolutely. Now, that's Bert Van Manen you're talking about? That's right, yeah. So Bert came in in, in the 2010 election. And then in the 20, 2013 election, when the government took back over, um, there was this really, really popular Labour candidate, Des Hardman, Um and then, uh, you know how the Rudd government, well, the Gillard government became the Rudd government again just a couple of weeks before the election, um, or six weeks before the election. Uh, they put Beattie and uh, Peter Beattie into the seat over Des, and that took a lot of the goodwill for the ALP out of the seat. So even, even today, um, like, Des would have won that a seat for the Labor Party um, in 2013, but um, even today... Um, you can't go around any of our major towns like Beanley, Yatla, Coomera, Ormo, uh, even all the way up to Baronia Heights and stuff because there's that much hate for the Labor Party because of that, but they're just not seen as a viable option. So they rather play with the devil they know, the LNP, um, as opposed to the fair options. And that's, I guess that's where I'm coming in. Um, I'm not part of the ALP. Um, we share some DNA because, you know, the Labour movement came out of liberalism, but, you know, we're not the same thing. Um, so, yeah, it's me trying to just... Uh, and actually, we see that in the polling too. Um, so, ALP are coming dead last in the, in the polling and board, and LNP are not much better. Um, and just because we're trying to get people on the ground level, trying to build things up, um, our polling suggests that about 85% of Ford voters are just looking for a well, they're looking at us emerging parties and minor candidates um, because they, they want something different and they, don't, they they have no other option, I guess. I know we're just talking about a federal electorate seat here, but I can see similarities to um, 
Jeremy Corbyn's and Keir Starmer here over in the UK Labor Party with what happened with Peter Beattie. That's right, yeah. It's the exact same scenario. Um, uh, it's just taken all the goodwill out of the party. Um, and because of that, it won't be another generation before Labor can take the seat. Um, and, you know, like I'm not a member of the Labor Party. Um, I disagree with them on many topics. Like yesterday, for example, um, well, this will date the podcast, but the um, how the Labor Party pushed through um, the Religious Discrimination Act so that they can get in the Senate. I thought that was really wrong. They should have just stood up for their morals and took it out in the House because people were willing to cross the floor to help them anyway. Um, so obviously I'm not a part of the Labor Party, but um, I obviously uh, have more synergism with them than the LNP. Um, but seeing as the ALP have no chance, um, I think there's a real opportunity for uh, minor parties and emerging parties like myself and the independent guy, he's pretty good too, um, to stand up and just provide the alternative because, you know, I don't think TNL would work um, 10 years ago. I don't think people were looking for options 10 years ago. Um, but the government has just done such a poor job for the pandemic and before that during the bushfires and they've hidden behind the charade of being good economic managers, but obviously they haven't been because the economy is just getting worse and worse. And in some respect, they have to admit that Keynesian works because they kind of relied on that during the pandemic, even though they uh, scolded the previous government over it. So they've, they've lost the, uh, the the stool to stand on um, with, um, in terms of good economic management. And people are just seeing, starting to see them for who they are. And, you know, the people of Ford don't want the Labour Party. Um, so I'm here to provide a different option. They did indeed um, use some Keynesian economics for the pandemic. I remember that then Finance Minister Matthias Cormann saying, what other choice do we have? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Keynesian works. Um, <laughs> and that's a very controversial statement, right, from the 40s? <laughs> it's still controversial today, but everyone's got a different definition. That's right. <laughs> Um, I've got a little thing I like to say, like you said about economic management, I've coined the term umbrella up economics yep. rather than bubble up or trickle up. Why umbrella up? Well, from the bottom, going up, grassroots, someone like yourself or other minor parties. Yeah. And umbrella, because it protects you from the shit that rains down from trickle down economics. That's right. That's right. Um, I mean... Obviously, I understand the philosophy behind trickle-down economics, but this makes no practical sense, right? Because people store their money in banks. <laughs> like, If it like, worked, everyone would have a job right now, wouldn't they? Exactly. That's exactly right. And like, if you just think about it, right, like, what do we do with our spare money? We invest it in stuff and we put it in banks. So, you know, even at our scale, we prove that trickle-down economics doesn't work because what do you think rich people are going to do? Just find another investment. That's right. <laughs> Uh, it's not spend money in the economy that we get the economy going. So, no, that's the job for you and me and everyone else listening. That's right. So, um, exactly. So, we need more people who think like that in Parliament, and I guess that's one of the reasons I'm running. Um, obviously, I'm a scientist, so economics isn't my strongest suit. But uh, you know, it's a pretty basic principle once you once you once you hear it, right? As a scientist, I'd imagine you're familiar with. Um complex systems thinking and that's all economics is i'm sure you can wrap your head around it pretty quickly yeah yeah exactly sam mentioned mmt there 
I think now might be a good time to go to our final thought bubble on modern money theory, MMT. Previously on Modern Money, we looked at the four features of a sovereign currency. We then looked at the four benefits of a sovereign currency. We learned the key to prosperity are the real resources a nation can access such as land, equipment, skills of its people, and natural resources. And productively employing all those resources is necessary for prosperity. It is not a sufficient condition though, as a nation has to have sufficient resources to be prosperous. Putting it all together. MMT says the government cannot run out of money. Critics accuse us of advocating spending without limit and hyperinflation. As Warren Mosler puts it, government checks don't bounce. As obligations such as interest payments come due, sovereigns can always pay. Critics say MMT says deficits don't matter. The truth is as deficits grow and then the economy improves, automatic stabilizers kick in reducing deficits. Allocating resources to poverty, homelessness, and aged care is what matters. MMT says government spends by keystroking reserves into existence. Critics say it is all about forcing central banks to print up money for all government spending. The current procedures adopted by the Treasury, Central Bank and private banks allow government to spend up to the budget approved by Parliament, no change of procedure is required. MMT emphasizes that sovereign governments face resource constraints not financial constraints. MMT has always argued that too much spending, whether by the government or the private sector, can cause inflation. Modern Money, MMT. I'll get on to some of the hard-hitting questions now, if you like. Oh, no, please no. <laughs> this one's got a bit of a long-winded intro, so bear with me. All right, I'll, I'll get my novel out. <laughs> there have been 500 or more Aboriginal Australian deaths in custody since we really began to pay attention to the number, I think in the late 80s. Since around 2008, 40 of them have occurred in Queensland, where your seat is. Yep. Do you believe our current criminal justice system disproportionately impacts Indigenous First Nations communities? And if so, how? I mean, yes. Um, next question? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how can it not? 
I was just speaking with Auntie, a senior elder, Auntie Frieda and elder Auntie June the other day. Um, and, you know, they've been trying to help First Nations people in our community for decades. And they've been telling me stories of young men and women. Um, and, like, imagine this, right? Say, say, you went to, say you went to China, right? And you're in China and you get put up and the police take you into jail or take you into jail and they try to charge you with something. You aren't familiar with the system. It's different to what you expect. I mean, you know, like you weren't raised in that system, so how do you expect to thrive in it? And that's what, how a lot of Aboriginal communities feel. Um, you know, they don't have their elders for support. They don't have the systems which they've grown up with for support. Um, so, you know, like, uh, well, the conviction rate's going to be higher. But the idea is that we need to create a system that better reflects um, their customs and, you know, um, and... You know, so the support services are based on it. Because, you know, we live in a country where you're supposed to be innocent before you're guilty. Um, and honestly, even for people who aren't Indigenous, it treats you as if you're guilty before you're innocent. So um, it's obviously going to affect those who, um, in that situation, even more. Yeah, you kind of really answered my next question there, so I'll have to skip that one. Oh, uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's just because they've had a different culture imposed upon them and their supports, as you said, have been removed. And now they don't know how to react or behave because they've got literally no support. And in an earlier episode, well, I'm hoping it'll be earlier, that's what I mentioned. What is, I talked about what is the cause of bad behaviour and I talked about not having those supports in place. Yeah. Family, friends. Yeah, exactly. Understanding the culture. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, exactly right. Like, we, we stripped them of their culture. Um, we can't pretend that it has no impact on them. Um, and I say that we in the local sense because, um, you know, a large number of my community fit into that category. Now, I'll go through a few um, social justice and other issues here. I'm not sure what they all are off the top of my head, but <laughs> yep. I'll just move on to the next question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Health-related one. Yep. Do you believe everyone should have access to high-quality affordable, and as we just discussed, non-discriminatory health care, including dental and mental health care coverage? I mean, uh, I may as well get the button. The answer is again, yes. Um, but let me explain why in more than just a single word sentence. Um, by having better systems, you have a better economy. I mean, if we look at it purely from the immoral view of you're running an economy, healthier and happier people make more money. And that's better for the economy in general. Now, if we go past that purely economic response and look at a uh, more human response, why on earth would we have a country and why on earth would we like part of a country that doesn't care about our health or our mental health or our dental as well? You know, like what is the point of having a government if it is not to protect the people, including their health, dental and mental health? So does TNL, the neoliberals, have a policy to, say, put dental and mental coverage under Medicare or something like that? Yeah, we do. Um, I mean, as they always should have been. Um, I, I don't understand why, um, historically, people thought that teeth didn't um, get put into Medicare because, you know, they have such an impact on your quality of life. Like, without teeth, it's harder to eat things, which means it's harder to maintain your health. They serve so many functions. Look. We're just talking now, but we're still using our teeth. That's right. That's right. Um, so, you know, like, it's a part of you. It should be covered. Um, and same with mental health, right? Like, well, mental illness is illness. <laughs> um, like, 
Yeah, I don't think I can say it any better. Mental illness is illness. I, I think you're trying to say is your mental health is just as important as your physical health. That's right. Um, and the stigma associated with mental health uh, is wrong because we wouldn't we wouldn't laugh or like we wouldn't shame someone for having kidney disease, right? You wouldn't shame someone for having a heart attack. Uh, but people do shame people for having depression, and that's just wrong. And, you know, I think that's part of the stigma that uh, is the reason why mental health wasn't covered originally, and it should be in the future. Look, I think you're absolutely right there. It's a part of what we see in a lot of politics of making someone or something the other. That's right. Um, I'm just going to digress a little bit here. I just heard you mention kidney disease, and I believe that's a bit of your specialty. Yeah, that's right. I had been working on a PhD, basically because my training is in microbiology. I basically had the idea of a because I'm used to seeing collections of cells sort of interact, so bacteria and interact with one another to um, get a uniform goal. In microbiology, we call that a biofilm, but in animal cells, we call that a tissue or you know an organ at a certain level. I, I went and looked into that for the kidney, and the reason why I'm interested in the kidney, well, in part because I was actually listening to a podcast a couple of years ago, and I found the biochemistry just so interesting. Like the brain does essentially five things and the kidney does a billion. <laughs> you know, I just thought it was so cool. But, I understand um, you're exaggerating there, but not by much, I'd imagine. Maybe only a million, not a billion. <laughs> because it does so many things. Like it has to do water and, and like mineral transfer and so many things. Um, the trouble with kidney disease is uh, you can maintain a very good quality of life until you're basically buggered. And... Um, because of that, um, it's very hard to know if you're actually sick. Um, so I'm not sure it's exactly true or not, but some people say you can live up to 5% of one kidney and still live a normal life, which you know sounds pretty good, really. But the downside to that is that by the time you notice, you have less than 5% of one of your kidneys working. And by that point, we can't really do much for you other than put you on dialysis or to get you a new kidney. But if we could tell before then that you were sick, then we could stop you getting that sick in the first place. And then you would have never even need to get a transplant. My fiance works in a transplant ward. Well, she did before COVID. And, you know, organs are in a, a scarcity. And if we can stop people ever having to get to that point, we instantly improve their quality of life because dialysis sucks. It really sucks. You know, it's a miracle that we have the technology, but uh, it takes up days of people's lives and you know, their quality of life is suddenly taken because they can't take that family holiday anymore, you know, or they they struggle to go to work because they have to strap themselves in for dialysis two to three times a week. So although... Go to their kids or grandkids and so forth. Exactly right. So, you know, so if we can prevent them ever having to get to that point, which is the point of my research, then, you know, it's a net benefit. Well, I mean, it makes their life so much better. You've actually covered a few things there. As you said, when... Look, I can't remember how you put it, when all the little cells and organs get together, feel turn into an organ at the larger scale. I think you said biofilm at the smaller scale. Look, you're just talking simple economics there to me. Yeah. You've got the micro and macro covered. And I mentioned earlier about complex systems. Sounds like you've got it down pat to me. Yeah, yeah. When you say it like that, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like if we treat everyone, if we, if we treat every person in an economy as a cell, then economics is just the the way that all of those people spend money, right? Yes, it is. But I think, like you, I'd imagine, I think it's more than that, all the social interactions, and we're all interdependent on what the other person or other people do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the body and the organs are. Yeah, actually, now you say that, that makes a lot of sense, actually, yeah. 
Do you believe that the federal court and high court judges that we have in Australia should reflect the diverse communities they serve? Like you can look around and look at the um, ethnic, racial, religious makeup of Australia, for example. Yes, I do believe that, but I don't think it should be forced, right? Like, I don't think we should constrict, sorry, conscript people of... Word. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we should, we don't think we should conscript people to um, go to jobs they don't want to do, but as much as we can, we should have um, the courts reflect the people they're serving because, you know, then, then we have a better diversity of understanding and it, it leads for better, well, it leads for better courts, really. So no enforced quotas, but a preference for that diversity. That's right. So like, you know, like, I don't think we should take every third Asian kid and turn them into a judge. Like, you know, unless they want to be a judge one day, <laughs> or you know what I'm saying. We are talking about diversity here, so I'm not going to take that any other way than the way you mean it. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, like we shouldn't take, uh, you know, and, you know, just because like, I, I, I believe in choice. Um, and if people want to be lawyers and want to be judges, then I want to create systems that support them doing that. And, you know, honestly, that's in some regard the basis of um, the TNL job guarantee scheme. Like, it's about creating good options for people to do work they find fulfilling. And I think once we, uh, once we have systems that um, engage people and stuff they find fulfilling, it'll actually start to solve itself out because I think a lot of the issues in terms of this uh, and why our communities or why our services don't, re don't, don't reflect our communities is because of the stigmas and, you know, the, all, all the massive um, friction there is to getting into careers that people want to do. And if we can take that friction away and start to help people uh, find the work that they really love to do, and, you know, it could be working in the courts, it could be becoming a doctor, it could be becoming a lawyer or an engineer. I just believe in the point of a point of the government is to help people achieve what they want to achieve. And, and once the government starts doing that, I think a lot of these issues will solve themselves. But at the moment, our system isn't designed like that. And we see the um, we see the results of that. You know, it, it, it is inherently harder to um, get to these high pay positions if you come from a diverse background. And I think that's wrong. So in the end, freedom of choice is empowering. Yes, exactly. Um, freedom of choice and then systems to help you have that choice. Yes, because some of our current systems don't allow us to do certain things, to, uh, less freedom and force us to do certain things. That's exactly right. And the ways that our systems work, um, like you might technically have a choice, but if you only technically have a choice in, in, in name and nothing else, then that's not really a choice. A Hobson's choice, a choice that is no choice at all. Exactly right. Okay, it's, it's ballot day, polling day, whatever you want to call it, the day you vote. Should the people behind bars and previously and current convicted felons lose the right to cast their vote? <laughs> you weren't kidding about hard questions, were you? I'm in two minds about this, so I'll stay on the negatives to begin with, and I'll, and I'll come to my actual answer. On one hand, I can see the argument for why not, right? Like, there is that internal uh, logic behind, like, people's psyches demand punishment, right? Like, and I don't agree with that, but people see that as part of the punishment. But um, as, we as, you know, as we discussed before, but on the other hand, the chance of being convicted for a crime is really just a function of how poor you are or, where, or how poor you are when you face the court. So obviously it's going to bias elections if we take that path. People who get convicted tend to be poorer because if you're richer, you can afford systems that keep you out of jail. <laughs> and I think the best approach might be a two-tier uh, two system where 
you know, depending on the crime. But honestly, one of the things I really like about TNL is our commitment to put science and logic ahead of what ourselves. I think one of the biggest problems, and specifically Australia's response to the pandemic, has been seeing leaders and, you know, world leaders, has been seeing world leaders have the hubris to put their views ahead of what experts are saying and have been thinking about for decades. And I think the lesson of the pandemic is that governments should be listening, shouldn't have the hubris to speak on things that they don't know about. So this isn't really my understanding. So I'm going to defer my answer to what criminologists have to say on this topic. And, you know, um, I'll obviously hear from different people what their views are, but I don't, you know, like one of the things I think I want to bring into government is the taking away of the maverick who just makes their mind up uh, regardless of what they believe. Uh, well, based on what they believe rather than what the facts say. Uh, it sounds like you're talking about a Corey Bernardi or a Craig Kelly there. <laughs> yeah, or, or a Scott Morrison. Yes, I wasn't going to quite insult the Prime Minister just yet. Hey, hey, by the time this comes out, he might not be the Prime Minister. <laughs> That's possible. <laughs> but on what the criminal justice law systems might say, I think they'll just defer to human rights in general and say, Sure, they broke the law, but still people, and they have a right to vote. And that's yeah. probably I'd need to check in the UN Human Rights Convention. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, basically, based on that information, yeah, I agree. You know, if we, if we take the logic that voting is a, is a native human right, then being in prison doesn't take away your native human rights. Uh, no country can take away your human rights. So, ipso facto, if we take that... Uh, voting is a human right, then it doesn't matter if you're in prison, you still have the right to vote. Okay. Um, speaking of the Prime Minister, getting on to a religious-related question, under what circumstances do you believe that the public purse should be used to fund services provided by religious or religiously affiliated institutions, if any? Um, well, I believe in the separation of church and state, so I'm very hesitant on this. Uh, but what I will say is that I don't believe in pork barreling, and I really, really dislike people who pork barrel in the name of church. And I'm not a very religious person. Uh, I am spiritual. But, I mean, sorry to make this forward-centric, but my political opponent is going around to all the churches and enticing them and with funding and um, a generic commitment that he's doing God's work. And honestly, it just made me sick. You know, the government shouldn't be interacting with the church or any religious institution on that level. And, you know, besides, Jesus never preached in a church. I think there's actually even a passage on that. What is the book of John, maybe? And basically, Jesus walks into, um, I think it was a synagogue, um, and there's, there's bankers and people selling and trading stuff inside the, ch- uh, inside, inside the synagogue. And um, he, like, gets really angry about it. And so in some regard, I see any church or any religious institution that's running up uh, to the government for money is sort of counter to what their religion even says. But that all being said, um, I don't actually have a problem with non-for-profits going to ask for money. And, you know, if, if a church is acting as a non-for-profit um, and they're actually using it for the community to do community good, um, you know, I don't have a problem with that. But they need to be held to the same account as any other community group. Quite a nuanced answer. Yeah. Yeah. This is a tricky one for men. Yep. With sexual assault survivors, sorry, with sexual assault survivor 2021 Australian of the Year, Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins in the news recently, what measures can be brought to bear by TNL or whoever to ensure, for what I'm going to call, for the lack of a better word, sexual equity? Yeah, well, 
not to quit too hard, but the starters, we shouldn't be expecting them to show up and smile and photo ops with them, the Prime Minister, who caused the issue to begin with. Nor should we be refusing to go see them on their terms and say they'd be lucky they're not to be shot. You know, why would you even say that in a first world country? I don't know. So that's the definition of what you shouldn't do. But I think the real answer is um, just doing what Craig Tame says and just do the opposite of what Scott Morrison has. I think she said recently, uh, and don't directly quote me on this, but she said, um, uh, I think she was asked, what does Albo need to do to be a better advocate for women? And she went, well, just look at Scott Morrison and do the opposite. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, you know, that, I'm going to leave that as my official answer. But uh, I think, I think, well, the beginning, I guess from the beginning, we need to start looking at the, we look just purely in Parliament House. Maybe we can start looking at the recommendations of the Jenkins report. Like two days ago, our parliament stayed up to 5 a.m. purely to um, purely to debate a law that, or a bill that should have never been put into the government in the first place. It was based entirely on discrimination. And one of the main recommendations of the Jenkins report was don't have uh, really late hours in parliament because it leads to bad opportunities like this. So, like, literally a day after they went, oh, yeah, we're going to follow the Jenkins report now, they... They choose to not follow one of the key key principles of it. Yeah, well, I, think I saw a response from the what was what do you call him? The president in the Senate, isn't it? Um, yeah, that's right. Say, say, um, yeah, thanks for that, but I don't know what you want me to do about it. That's paraphrasing what he said. Yeah, yeah, the Speaker of the House did say that because um, uh, the the Independent um, Zali Stegel, I think her name is. That, that's who it was. I couldn't remember. Thank you. Um, yeah, the speaker said that to, to said that to the independent um, for Oringa, and yeah, well, to begin with, maybe we could work for more than ten days a year. That'd be great. <laughs> Absolutely, and look, I think we can let Grace Tame speak for herself here. Really, she's told us what to do. That's right. Uh, if I'm lucky, I've used a clip on it on a previous episode, so we'll leave that at that. Cool, cool. But we'll also go once again. It's about empowerment. That's exactly right, and we should be creating systems that do empower you know, sexual equity. Um, and not just sexual equity, but equity in general. You know, there's lots of advantages that I have as a white straight male, you know. So um, I, I I don't believe in taking those advantages away, but I do certainly believe in creating opportunities to give everyone else the same advantages. Privilege is a difficult concept for most to grasp. It's not what most people think it is. Who knows? That could be a topic of another podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'd love to come on so you can teach me. Oh, look, I'll be learning myself. In this next segment, we are discussing universal basic income, and I use the term universal guaranteed income. The term I intended to use was guaranteed minimum income. Now, to a question that's close to my heart, a bit of a two-pronged question. Uh, we've recently renamed a new start to Job Seeker. So yeah. do you think the Job Seeker payments and the minimum wage, which is different from Job Seeker, yeah. should be increased? And if so, to what rate and why? All right, I'm going to go back to my previous question about hubris. So I'm not entirely sure what the rate should be. But I will say at the beginning of the pandemic, the you know the rate we had was pretty good. And I think that would work in an open economy. Um, you know, We're in a modern monetary theory podcast, so... You would know the government can create money when it's needed, and frankly, at the moment, it is needed. And once the money enters the economy, it it, re- it continues to cycle, and it provides much more than the initial stimulus. 
and that's just Keynesianism. So, you know, like I believe that increasing uh, the job seeker payment would actually be a net benefit um, to society. As for minimum wage, I'm not sure what the rate should be. I think it should be a little bit higher than job seeker to create that incentive. But um, I think um, our, our principal in the our principal in our um, job guarantee scheme provides that. So you know, uh, one of the things I really like about TNL is it doesn't enforce people to go and become like if you want to stay on job seeker, that's completely okay. And that's reasonable. You know, people's situations are different, and I don't think we should call it job seeker. I think we just call it a universal income because even if we don't need it yet, um, the universal basic income is required in 10 years' time, if nothing else. And so uh, I do, but I do believe there should be that incentive to go and find work. And I think the job guarantee that we have is really good. Like it's designed to create opportunities for people who want to find fulfilling work to do stuff that they find interesting. It's not to put you in whatever first job we can get you, but it's normally, it's normally shit. Um, like, you know, job seeker is designed to do. It's designed to find work that you'll actually find fulfilling. And so, yeah, I, I believe maybe it should be a little bit higher than the universal basic income, but um, I don't know the exact numbers because, uh, you know, I don't have the hubris to say that without, the, without my field of study. Okay, so it's open for discussion. And it sounds like... Um... You've been listening to a bit to your um, New South Wales Senate candidate there, Steve Keane, from some of that. Yeah, exactly right. Um, I mean, he wrote the book on it. Um, so, you know, it, it'd be wrong for me to try uh, reinvent the wheel. Okay. Maybe I'll see if I can have him on one day. Personally, I do take some issues with some of what you said there, but this is not about me. Well, I don't. Um, I mean, I mean, um, I'm hoping to discuss like, um, you know, like I do see some logic to it, right? Like, like some, like, like I can see where there could be errors in it, and I'm hoping to discussing that too. Um, I'll just suggest that maybe instead of a universal basic income, maybe a guaranteed or a universal guaranteed income. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. There is there is some nuance in the difference between the two. Okay. Um, yeah. No, definitely. Um, and maybe maybe what I meant was a universal guaranteed income rather than a basic income. Um, that might be my that might have been my uh, nomenclature mistake. Uh, perhaps, or perhaps you're still thinking it through. We all do it. We we don't come out into politics. Well, major parties seem to and say this is what we believe. This is what we do, and this is the stuff we're saying. Then go to the opposite in practice and come out and say no, that's not what we did. But yeah, you're actually thinking things through in practical terms. I get it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, in simple terms, based on what you just said, I guess you don't support what's commonly known as work for the doll? No, I don't. Um, I think knowing some people who have uh, run such programs, I think it was, in some respects, created with good intentions, but the way it currently works is bad. Like, I know this really great artist who um, creates some work for the doll programs where she can get out people who are having a really bad time and you know, they have that paralysis and not want to get work. Uh, and she provides opportunity to go get skilled in, in, in art, uh, which I find is a really good thing. And I like, that's a really good intention that I think, I think has been exploited by malevolent people in the government to create the system that currently exists. Look, I, I get that. And that sounds more like a job guarantee program to me than a work for the doll one where you're forced to go somewhere, somewhere specific that doesn't take a job off anyone else. For I think I read recently forty cents an hour. Yes, exactly. To, um, 
worked for the doll activist Jeremy Poxon. Christ. Uh, that's that's terrifying. I, I can't yeah. see how anyone would look at that and think that's a reasonable idea, but you know there are people who say it and it's just wrong. Essentially, it's Job Seeker plus $20 if you can get it. Christ. And that's only an additional $20 a fortnight. I mean, why would you bother, right? It takes more than $20 to go drive or to catch transport, even if you're not driving. Um, or get an outfit or just to get a decent self-esteem from being paid pennies. Exactly right. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, I understand the logic of, like, you know, why would you work for <clears throat> bugger all more than what you're guaranteed on free? And that's the principle behind why I really like our, our job guarantee in that it, it creates fulfilling work and it's designed to give you, uh, you know, expendable income that is up and above the, um, a guaranteed income. And, you know, working should be something that working should be something that um, is encourageable. Uh, like, you know, money, money is an incentive that should be used, but um, it shouldn't be exploited like it currently is in our system. Look, I think that's the principle of the doll. It is assuming other people are lazy. So here, this is what work looks like. You don't need to be lazy. But I think the people that invented the thing have missed the point. Yeah. And what you've just described is what I just call being human. It's humanist. That's exactly right. Um, exactly right. 99% of people are trying to do the right thing. Yeah, there will be 1% of the people who are trying to be malevolent. But I don't think we should be writing our laws based on that 1%. Look, I've got my favourite little saying that came from Kate Rayworth, who authored Donut Economics. She's quoting a futurist, Alvin Toffler, and she says, how productive would your workforce be if they weren't toilet trained? Exactly. Exactly right. And don't we do something productive every day, whether it's within our own house, whether it's within the community, whether it's just buying something, being productive and helping other members of our community? Exactly right. In our final segment, Sam mentions the Greens only fighting their political enemies. Well, of course, that's what you do with political enemies. But I'm fairly confident Sam meant fighting political allies. I also give a garbled definition of classical and social liberalism. To be clear, classical liberalism stresses individual and individual property rights, natural rights, limits on government, and so on. Social liberalism values all those things and sees a role for democracy in obtaining those things. Back to Sam. So I'll bring you to the the raison de tetra, your reason for being, so to speak. Yeah. What is the heart of your decision to run for Ford? What experiences have you had that made you passionate enough to run and cop all the flack you're copying politics? Yeah. Um, this is a question that really sits close to me because... I mean, there, there's three there's three events that sort of led up to it. Um, the first one was, uh, you know, my training in microbiology. Um, one of my exam questions was actually how I would manage a uh, coronavirus epidemic, not a pandemic, but the principles translate. And needless to say, I don't think the government's done a very good job at it. So that, that was one of the key figures. But obviously on top of that too, the um, the bushfires is another, is another aspect. So there's that seeing the incompetence in the government and then that creates a spark to go look to see what else they're incompetent at and perhaps could I do better. And the second thing, um, so I joined the Labour Party for that actually because 
um, I thought, well, until recently, I had a bit of an issue with minor parties, especially seeing how sometimes the Greens seem to just attack their political enemies. And I thought, well, that's not good. And in some respect, uh, you know, I understand the logic, you know, the Labour Party is much, much, much more, or the current Labour Party is much, much, much more reliable than our current government. Uh, but I don't, I don't think they're not perfect. Um, but then I saw a tweet from Victor Klein. It would have been about June last year. And he said, um, name one person in politics you really aspire to be like. And I, I looked at myself and I, there, there are people that um, were in the Labour Party and were in the Liberal Party, but, you know, but uh, I aspire to be like. So our party's based on traditional liberalism. Um, the LPA, like the current Liberal Party, is the second Liberal Party in Australia. Um, the first one was started by Prime Minister Deakin as a Deakin University, and you know, I have a lot of respect for him. But then I have other people like Ford, who the electorate's named after, um, and Whitlam, and Hawke, and Rudd, um, and Keating, actually, even. You know, these are people I look up to, but people in the current uh, current Labour Party and, you know, even other parties, I don't really... Res- like, I do respect, but I don't really aspire to be like them. And so... He said, um, you know, which party do you? And I went, you know, Vic, actually, I do aspire to be like you. At the time, I wasn't really sold on minor parties. So I guess it uh, went in a different direction of conversation. But uh, about a month later, my, my nan died. Um, Sorry, yeah. There. Yeah. And um, she always believed in me. She always thought I was going to do something good. And at the time, well, I still haven't technically. I still don't think I've lived up to the potential that she saw in me. And I, I wanted to do something. Well, I promised her when I when I saw her laying in her bed after she passed, but I would actually do something for her. We'll do something on that level. And um, you know, she died believing in this government. She believed that, you know, all her life she voted LNP, and she died believing that Scott Morrison and Barnaby Joyce and Greg Hunt were all acting in her best interest where I can quantifiably say they weren't. So here I am standing to try to provide a better option so that other people, other people's grandmas and, you know, they're, they're people themselves can see that there's someone actually trying to fight for them uh, instead of just taking taking their votes and pretending to use the name and uh, trying to use it as a cushy job to get through life. So that's why I'm running. That's quite a emotional story with a lot of background and it sounds like you're bringing together both sides of uh, liberalism, the sides that we tend to forget about the um, classical which is the freedom of freedom to choose side and what used to be called social liberalism which is a bit like the US Democrats I suppose Yeah, which, which is like fine work if you want it as you described under the working system we just discussed all I can say, Sam, is in the words of, I think, Teddy Roosevelt, it's not the critic that counts, it's the man in the arena doing the blood, sweat and tears. Yeah, Even exactly. Even if they fail, they're doing something. Exactly. Um, and so that's why I'm doing this, because if nothing else, then I can say, I tried then, <laughs> um, and uh, I can get up next time and try again. Um, and nothing else, I hope that I hope that people like me and the rest of people in TNL at least create that inspiration for people to start looking at policy rather than, um, you know, the binary 
um, tribalism that I think Australian po- has permeated, well, Western politics. We see it in America too and the UK. So I'm hoping that people like me and, um, you know, other political analysts and you know, other people who are just people who said enough is enough, I want to stand up. I think I really hope that we have an impact on Australian politics moving forward. Well, thank you for your time, Sam. Really appreciate you having me. Um, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That's it for today. Have a modern money day. This is Darren Quinn with Australian Real Progressives. Think big, think different, think MMT. Taxes are important, they impose morality, they also control inflation, and of course they drive the currency. And this is what we lovingly call debt-free save.